Good morning, everybody. Welcome to a first for the United States Study Center, uh, a webinar, as we're calling them, um, made possible through modern technology and um, and I guess the whole world is now getting acquainted with these technologies if they weren't already, but in our case, Zoom, um, sort of the, the tool of choice, certainly in higher ed settings uh, in Australia and around the world. Um, we're delighted to be able to do this and we're delighted that so many of you have signed up uh, for this event. Uh, to Brave New World, um, for all of us, uh, please do bear with us. If there are any teething problems with, um, with this, our first webinar, um, for which over 400 people uh, express an interest uh, in participating in. Um, that will certainly be, uh, uh, would be a very large event in person uh, for the United States Study Center. So we're, we're absolutely excited on the one hand and, and hopeful that the technology uh, holds up and it's a good experience uh, for those of you um, supporting the center by attending <laughs> an event. Uh, at, at this particular moment. Look, today we're, we're talking about responses to COVID-19 in Australia and the US con consistent with the mission of the United States Study Center uh, to educate Australians uh, about the United States. And as you can see, our motto at the center, analysis of America and insight for Australia. Our plan at the center is to continue to service that mission uh, even while we're in work remote and, 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 and using technologies such as these. Uh, and, and no greater topic at the moment, quite plainly, uh, is, is exercising our minds and our, our waking hours uh, than the way both the Australian government, you know, of most immediate interest and importance to Australians, but how the United States is also responding to that. And what are the lessons for Australia in the way that the United States is responding to the pandemic, and that's going to be our topic, broadly speaking, today. I'm delighted to have uh, Dr. Leslie Russell with us today. Uh, Leslie's at her home, um, uh, joining us by Zoom. Hello, Leslie. Hello there, and hello, everybody online. Uh, Leslie is an adjunct associate professor at the Menzies Centre for Health Policy at the University of Sydney, and, and that's uh, an important and impressive credential, but most of, of most relevance to today's webinar is the fact that Leslie, like myself, was a dual national of the United States and Australia, but unlike me, um, actually knows what she's talking about when it comes to public health. Um, Leslie's PhD was in molecular biology, but then she went on her first job as a researcher, if you will, was uh, studying infectious diseases um, at the United States Department of Defense, Defense Medical School, uh, part of the enormous, what we now call the medical industrial complex, uh, most of which sits in, in Maryland, just outside the District of Columbia. And, and in Bethesda in particular, was Leslie's first real post-PhD research topic on infectious diseases. She then had a career advising governments both in Australia and in the United States on all matters to do with health policy. But her time in the United States uh, advising US Congress, at least the start of it, coincided with the HIV AIDS um, epidemic. And, and again, that's where that second phase of Leslie's career, sort of deploying her academic uh, insight and experience and expertise 
into a real live health crisis and, and advising policymakers. Uh, so it's hard to think of someone better placed uh, than Leslie to, to serve the, the topic that we've got on the table today. And that is um, this comparison of the way the two countries are responding to this crisis and, and, and lessons um, that translate across the Pacific um, um, for Australia, at least in the first instance uh, from this. We've got a, a ton of questions from people as you registered for this event. We'll be getting to those um, a little bit later on in, in the webinar. And then a time permitting and technology permitting, we will open it up for um, live questions. Um, um, and again, we'll see how we go on that. Um, but to begin with, I'm gonna just have a, if it was a US studies set of in-person event, there'd be a bit of back and forth, a bit of in conversation between me and Leslie. So let's get into that part of the event. Uh, Leslie, I think the first thing I think we all need to understand is what distinguishes COVID-19 in your view from other pandemics and what challenges do those specifics of COVID-19 present to policymakers to uh, dampen down its spread and, and, and protect society? Right. <laughs> well, um, it's a new coronavirus, uh, so that means there are lots of things we don't know about it. On the other hand, we do know quite a lot about the class of coronaviruses. Um, it has a pretty long incubation period, generally somewhere between 5 and 14 days. And the biggest problem, I think, that we're facing is that... Um, People can be asymptomatic whilst they're infectious. Uh, and that means that, that a lot of things are happening in a way that's unseen. Uh, it also means that given that we're not testing, that virtually no country is testing everybody, what we really see is the tip of the iceberg. And in countries like Australia and the United States, we have no idea what the size of the iceberg is underneath. But we can certainly, as far as the United States is concerned, be pretty worried about the fact that that's pretty big underwater problem yet to emerge. So as soon as you start raising that facet of COVID-19, the first sort of response I have as a um, statistician slash social scientist, uh, amateur <laughs> epidemiologist, uh, very much so, would come on to the role of testing. Uh, the ability to understand what's happening in your population. Um, and, and on that, um, there straight away, I think we get to a point of marked differentiation between the two countries, Leslie, where on the one hand, I think Australia, it would seem, has a pretty good story to tell, at least if you look at per capita rates of testing, versus the United States. Whereas I understand it, um, there was a, frankly, a, it looks like a real false start with respect to yes. getting testing out and to the point now where the United States, I think is making up for lost ground on this, but significantly lags many other advanced industrial countries with the rate of testing. Right. In, in fairness, everything happened pretty quickly. I mean, it's 
only January 21 that America had its first recognised case. It, it wasn't until early December, for example, that the Chinese officials notified WHO that they had some sort of infectious disease problem going on in Wuhan. Um, that's not very long if you, if you think about it. Um, as, as I understand it, CDC started looking at doing the, uh, developing a test um, and said by January 24 that they had something, started putting it out to the, to the states that were affected, like Washington State, um, as, as early as just a few days after that. But it, but it wasn't very long before the state laboratories, states have the public health system, services in the states have their own laboratories, some of which are, are, are quite uh, competent, um, started sending back results that's, or, or queries that said, we're not getting good results with this test. The there was a recognition that the CDC test wasn't working, wasn't adequate. And rather than picking up on the WHO test, which had already been developed, or indeed offers of a test from Germany, or indeed allowing those hospital and state laboratories that were capable to develop their own tests, CDC said, put everything on hold, went back to twiddle their own knobs and re re reform and revitalise their test. And that was a real delay. In the meantime, everything was complicated because the borders with China were closed um, January 24, no, January 31 in the United States. And Trump assured everybody that that was really all that needed to be done. So there's general consensus that there was a lost month, a lost six weeks, where things that could and should have been happening were not, and that just put everybody behind the eight ball. Australia, for example, had their first case January 25, um, but had tests, maybe not enough tests, but had some tests ready to go, and certainly were already had screening implemented. So the fact that we were even just a few days behind what was happening in the United States gave us some opportunities to, 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 to intervene. By the time, if you remember, what really drove things into action in the United States was the finding that all those people in a Washington nursing home were infected. Right. Well, by the time that happened, and people recognised that there was at least a hotspot of disease there, that hotspot was dramatically bigger than the number of people who were infected in the nursing home. Um, and, and the problems just roll on incrementally from there. Um, you just referred to the CDC. Um, now, that's an institution you know, that, that I'm quite familiar with, um, at least at a general level. Um, but a lot of Australians won't be, um, although no doubt if you're following American news, you've heard a lot of reference to it, to it of late. Um, and it, as a general matter, has a reputation as being a world-leading research and policy shop Absolutely. Um, in, in pandemic management. Um, um, could you 
flesh that out for us and say a little bit about how unusual it was for CDC to sort of underperform at least in the opening weeks of yes. this crisis? Yes, I mean, you're quite right. It's, called, it's the Centres for Disease Control and Prevention and they do a lot of things. They do research, they do data tracking, they have terrific sets of reports, um, they have the ability to, to develop testing materials and validate those. Um, they do policy, they give out, um, uh, under Obamacare, for example, they were responsible for funding um, a whole lot of uh, prevention studies in the community, including tackling obesity. But um, the sort, that sort of work is often underappreciated. Um, we can argue that prevention doesn't get the attention it deserves in Australia. And although it, uh, CDC did very well under Obama, the mo almost instantly from the time that the Trump administration came in, they started to cut their budget and, you, and everyone's well aware of the extent to which scientific expertise has been devalued. So it was a very much a, um, I'll use the word neutered, it might not be quite the right word, but, but it was a very damaged department. Um, that's the unit in the United States that's responsible for, for the sort of the health aspects of the pandemic. The, the more complete um, coordination issues across uh, federal and state, uh, across uh, departments um, and divisions, that would normally have been the responsibility of the global pandemic unit within the National Security uh, Council had had infamously been completely disbanded. So the sorts of mechanisms that should have been in place to enable the US to spring instantly and accurately into action were largely disabled in an environment where the president wasn't interested in what science had to say about this and a lot of those sort of non-scientific opinions were reinforced with right-wing media and um, the Larry Kudlow's and so on of this world. That, that contrasts with the situation in Australia, um, which whilst I can be critical about it, was really much more established. Um, the Australian Health Minister's Advisory Council, we call it ARMAC, is a, a, a council of COAG, so all the relevant health ministers sit on that from the states and territories. And that has several principal committees, one of which is called the Australian Health Protection Principal Committee. And that's the committee that is responsible for managing pandemics in Australia. There are some other committees that are involved, for example, uh, the communication, uh, Communicable Diseases Network of Australia, which collects all the data and analyzes it and sends it out, that sort of thing. So, um, and but but the AHPPC um, has been in, in was established uh, in two thousand and nine or post two thousand and nine, and has been there for some time and and has plans for pandemics that are regularly updated and more particularly are regularly tested trial in small runs. So um, 
at least from the health perspective, Australia was much more set up, much more ready to go than the United States. Couple of, that's really interesting there, Leslie. Um, a couple of things jump out at me um, from your comparison of CDC and the Australian policy coordination infrastructure, if you will. And yeah. one is that it is policy coordination in that the federal nature of it is baked in the pie from the get-go in the standing body of federal state health ministers, whereas CDC, I think my image of it is at least it's known primarily for its scientific expertise, then it's a, a pathway back in how you then get the policy aligned and what, what standing infrastructure you have to solve state federal issues in the United States. It seems that the way we've designed some of these institutions in Australia are already got a, a looking down the game tree, as it were, to solving some of those issues. Scientific meets policy, federal meets state. That seems to be a little baked into the pie in the Australian policy infrastructure contra the US. It, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we often complain in Australia about the federal-state divide and what a hindrance that is to, to our health system and that, in fact, it means we have health systems, plural. Um, but the situation is arguably worse in the United States. And again, to repeat, that unit that once sat within the National Security Council, which might have been responsible for doing that sort of coordination, was, was not there. So there was a whole piece of the puzzle missing. A little less policy wonky maybe about institutional design and and that stuff that gets people like you and me excited. I'm wondering if we just zoom out for a moment and just putting your hat on as a, you know, as a, as a, as a public health expert and, and, and ask, I think, a, I think maybe a question we perhaps should have started with. And, and it's just how bad is it, Leslie, uh, in the United States uh, in terms of level, but also I think the thing we've all learned to look at is trajectory um, and also geographic dispersion. And, and start there, if you will, and, and maybe we will um, contrast that with, the, with Australia. Right. Look, I think it's pretty bad. Um, and I think there are hot spots where it's really, if it isn't already, about to become appalling. Um, I'm thinking about New York. Um, pretty soon it will be places in Louisiana, um, Michigan, um, it looks like there are potentially problems in California and Florida, uh, but they might be better placed to deal with it than some other states. But even small states like North and South Dakota, you know, they have, they probably don't even have in the hundreds yet of, of known infections. But, but going back to my point about that being the tip of the iceberg and looking at the resources that those sorts of states have to cope with even a small number of infections, it's, there's real reason to worry. And whilst I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, I saw recently the figures for how many counties in the United States don't have a hospital and how many more counties have a hospital but don't have an ICU. So, um, but what you're certainly what you're seeing in New York is that the hospitals, and these are primarily the public hospitals, the ones that take anybody who shows up, uh, are just inundated. There was a dreadful picture on Twitter 
um, yesterday of bodies lined up in a refrigerated container outside one of the hospitals. And I don't think anyone feels that, that the crisis point has been properly reached yet. Um, and I don't think anyone can be reassured. Um, I torment myself every morning watching Donald Trump's um, press conferences. Um, he goes live without any real interventions, without any ability for anyone to constrain him, unless Tony Fauci happens to be there. Um, and this morning's conference, for example, struck me as a cross between a kid doing show and tell at, 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 in the classroom and an advertorial for a whole lot of um, uh, companies, some of whom, in fairness, are doing a pretty good job. But, um, you know, I think then I think that also goes to the issue of um, there's a big political divide in the United States about how people are responding to uh, the coronavirus. It's, it's pretty shocking that um, Democrats seem to be taking this much more seriously than Republicans. And sadly, you certainly see that playing out in how the governors of red states are responding versus the governors in blue states. Um, you're much better off living in a blue state. And, and a lot of that is reinforced by this dreadful public scepticism about um, what the experts are saying versus believing anything that Trump says. You know, we've had some concerns in Australia that um, some of the decisions that our medical scientific experts have made have, have not been taken up in the way they should have been by our political leaders. But I think we've had a much better balance between politics and policy and, and in terms of how that's reported in the media. And that makes a difference in, in how people respond to what's a, 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 some pretty onerous um, requirements. Yeah, I think one of the really fascinating, if that's the right word, features of this in the United States is that unlike Boris Johnson, unlike Trudeau, unlike Scott Morrison, this is taking place in the United States set against an impending presidential election, number one. Right. Uh, number two, um, and you alluded to it, the overlay of the factors that drive the pandemic as a matter of public health and human biology, alas, map onto political characteristics of places and of states. Um, so too do the, uh, the, the, the proclivity to deploy the resources of the state to act mightily and swiftly, you know, small government work, big government mindset. So it's almost a perfect storm uh, in the United States. Um, and, and I think- In fairness, one thing I would interject is that um, we are seeing the governor, even though I sort of said you can see the response between the red states and the blue states, and you, and you can, but the governors in those states where things are starting to look bad are, are really responding in ways that, that that response hasn't been able to take place at the federal level. That, and, and you see that classically exemplified in the responses from 
um, Governor Cuomo in New York State and um, sorry, I'm going to blank on the name of the woman governor of Michigan, the one that Trump calls that woman. Um, you know, they have really stepped up to the plate. And Jay Inslee in Washington State. Yeah. They've um, really stepped up to the plate. Yeah. My sense is Florida will be a very interesting test case. Um, should this pandemic get out of control in Miami in particular, um, how, how I think, you know, a, a red state governor there has been reacting so far. You know, what, what's the old saying? There are no partisans in foxholes. Um, yes. And, and the, you know, the demographics of the Florida population and, and uh, make that that's pretty clear. That's a, that's a key point, I think, for Australian audiences to understand. As I, I sort of alluded to it a little, perhaps obliquely just before, but age maps onto partisanship, but also exhibits tremendous geographic clustering in the United States with sort of Florida as a huge destination for yes, and, we have, and you know, I, I don't actually know what's happening in Arizona, but, but it would be the same situation with, with um, those communities. Let's, let's move off that. Uh, well, I expect we'll come back to it in Q and A, um, but let's move off that for for a brief moment. Um, about five minutes before, I'd like to start working through some of the questions from um, that we, we've got in advance, in particular. Um, as dire as things are in the United States, with with Fauci talking about one hundred to two hundred thousand fatalities. Um, um, with a doubling every three days, it seems, of the fatalities, 1,000 to 2,000 fatalities went extremely quickly in the United States. <laughs> Leslie, are there any bright spots? Like, I, I look at the way in Australia, we moved, by my way of thinking, like shutting down international arrivals, the, the requirement to self-isolate. Now, I, you know, it's managed self-isolation. Um, uh, I think an embrace by the community of, of social distancing, um, a little, and businesses. Um, whereas in the United States, you can fly anywhere, pretty much, is my understanding of it. Air travel, getting in and out of New York, a place with you know this appalling growth in the in the in the fatality numbers, the overload. There, there's no mandate from enforceable mandate or even a you know to, to slow that down in the way that Australian jurisdictions I think the messaging from Morrison and state premiers has been stop interacting with one another people and I think that message has just been put out there a little more forcefully by political leaders in Australia adopted by the community not so much in the US. Do you have a theory of the case, as it were, on that? Well, it's, there are some states that have really stopped movement. Colorado comes to mind, but it depends on the governor and how far-sighted they are. Um, I, I think that there's a, as someone like you who's a bit of a student of the difference between Australians and Americans, Australians are much more willing to do what they're told. We kind of understand the greater good that I'm giving up a bit of things that are important to me because it's better for everybody. Um, 
was relatively easy to persuade Australians to have seatbelts, to wear bicycle helmets, that sort of thing. Those sorts of issues are very problematic in the United States. And, and so I think there's, there's some of that playing out. Um, and I think people are just, people are frightened. Um, and so people don't behave logically when they're frightened. There, there are stories, for example, in the United States about a dramatic increase in the purchase of guns, at least in some states, because some people are worried about civil violence, uh, fights over um, food and who gets what. Um, and those sorts of things are all, you're always closer to that situation in the United States because of the ready availability of guns. So I don't see a lot that's really bright about the United States. I think there are also problems. This um, pandemic is really highlighting the divides that exist in the United States between the haves and the have-nots, the digital divide, uh, it's just someone suggested the other day in an article I saw that re quarantine requests were in effect white collar quarantine effects. Yeah. It's not that those issues don't exist in Australia. They do. And we must be very careful to pay attention to them. But, but you know, we're geographically, we might be large, but population wise, we're smaller. So it's easier to get your arms around the problem in Australia than it is in the United States. And I think this issue about the, the social and ethical consequences of this pandemic and what impact that will have on societies, plural, around the world, not just Australia and the United States, is, is for, for a long time to come is something that we're really going to have to, to work through. The other thing I think you have to realise is you do look at the generosity and the willingness to act of the Australian government in terms of um, plugging the holes in the safety nets that, that we already had. Well, the US doesn't have those safety nets and the government has been slow to respond and it, was only, it required an act of Congress to ensure that people could get testing without having to pay. But there's no guarantee that having gotten tested you actually get treated and there are tens of millions of people in the United States either uninsured or inadequately insured. That, that's, that's so I'm pretty gloomy, I suppose, is the, this, the, the quick answer to your question. Um, what about Australia? Are you any, any um, if you were to assess how things are tracking here? I think we're really on a tipping point like the next couple of days, I've been looking particularly at the number of, of cases that are community acquired. So we have a lot of cases that are Australians coming back from overseas or coming back from cruises. Um, if you take those out of the question and, and look at the cases that are community acquired or that we don't know how they're acquired, I think that's the real measure of whether or not our isolation procedures are working. Um, and this morning, I can see that they are going down for New South Wales. They've gone down for the last two days. Well, the last two days is hardly a trend, um, but it's better than going up. And I, I'm actually 
New South Wales is the worst, so probably that's indicative of what's happening elsewhere. I think Tasmania, for example, has no community-acquired infections. So if that's the case, and if we can keep it up for long enough to sort of break the pandemic cycle, then I can be optimistic. But it's early, early days, and we don't know if this thing will come roaring back roaring back because we didn't contain it enough or roaring back because it's seasonal or roaring back because something else we haven't even thought about or projected happens. Yeah. Um, uh, let's get into Q&A now, um, at least the, the pre-baked portion of, of Q&A. Uh, so many people uh, have sent in questions as they registered for the event and um, great, great innovation um, among many innovations that we're trying out today. And so I, I'm, you know, we've only got so much time, so I'm cherry picking questions here that are, I think, emblematic of, um, there's so many people with a similar question. So um, I'm just picking out um, some of the highlights here. And, and Leslie, this one picks up on something that you just spoke about. And this comes from Robert Perkins, who was a partner at Radar Pictures. And this is a, a real question about the seasonality. Um, you know, does, the question reads, does being in the Southern Hemisphere, it's been the warm season, has that lessened the impact of the virus here? And I guess the, the, the implication there being as we head into the Southern winter, historically our, our flu season, does that mean, you know, there's a lot turns on, as you were just saying, yes. what happens on this cusp as we transition to um, in, into the winter, the southern winter? We don't know the answer to that question, but it crops up because there is evidence with some other um, pandemics of, of some sort of impact of seasonality, at least in some parts of the world. So it's possible that it's better or worse in the summer or in the winter. And certainly um, the reason why you're hearing a lot of messages in Australia about getting flu vaccinations is that as the flu season arrives, it's going to be very difficult to tell the difference between influenza and coronavirus if, if people aren't tested. And, and it's certainly going to make the strain on resources so much worse. Um, so I, I think we do have to worry about what winter means for Australia and, um, and what summer means for the United States, for that matter. Are you heartened at all, Leslie, by, I mean, the news in the last couple of days that began in the scientific community, you brought that to my attention, I think about eight, nine, actually 10 days, uh, 11 days ago now. Um, you know, the, 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 the response of the scientific community, number one, developing this antibody test, the, the science for that literally done by an international consortium, two Australian, you know, one in Sydney, one in Melbourne, scientists involved with this effort to develop that test for antibodies that is now, literally a week later yeah. is, is up and running as a commercial product. And, and indeed, you know, the media I'm reading suggests that in Australia, we're going to have access to that, those uh, blood, you know, the pinprick blood test looking for the presence of antibodies. Um, the, the pace of that is, is, is that a, a sense of optimism for you? Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, the, the root, 
R&D has sort of languished a little bit in, in uh, both Australia and the United States as government money has been harder to get. And, you know, it's a tough life out there for research scientists getting grants. But things like this have really driven R&D and really shown how what sort of expertise we have locally in Australia uh, that, that helps us be not just independent for ourselves, but to help the rest of the world. Um, and, and, you know, obviously that's also the case in the United States. So there's a lot um, around that. I, I mean, the antibody test isn't going to necessarily do anything about um, hindering the progress of the disease, but it is going to tell us who, um, who has been infected. And I read a paper this morning that suggested, I think Germany is going to start implementing those tests so that people who've had the disease and, and have recovered and have antibodies to disease, disease might, those might be the first people that you would let back into the, into the workplace, into the community. That's a road back um, to wherever we end up at the end of this. Um, but, but, you know, there are other things going on. I mean, aside from the story about chloroquine, which I'll sort of put to one side, we can talk about it if you want to, but don't like to talk about things where there's not much evidence. Um, people are pulling out drugs and testing them, and there's a concerted effort internationally. And, you know, ultimately, this is going to... this pandemic is not going to end until we have a vaccine. Uh, that is, um, whatever Donald Trump says, that is going to take some time. But I think we can conceivably look at a vaccine by 2021. That will just simply raise the question of then who gets it, um, not just within Australia or the United States, but who gets it in Africa or India or Indonesia or whatever as well. Yeah, I, I, I definitely want to come back to some of what's going on you mentioned germany um our focus is australia and the us but I, I i can't let today go without talking about what's going on in some other countries we'll come back to that but just on the us um i'm so many people um in the business community leslie have been asking about okay so when <laughs> when will travel renormalize between australia and the us if you're in you're on the verge of expanding your business footprint in the US or the other way around, your US business and, and your Australian operator, the ability to come and participate in the economy here and vice versa. What is it that governments will be looking to as you know, getting them comfortable again about lifting the travel restrictions between, between nation states? Um, well, it's going to boil down to numbers and it's going to boil down to meaningful numbers, um, which goes to, you know, what percentage of the population is being tested and what percentage of the population is positive and where are those sites and so on. And, and it may well be that in the first instance, people who want to start travelling internationally again will have to submit themselves to some forms of quarantine at either end in order to do that. Um, the, the, but again, the short answer to the question is, I don't know and I don't think anybody else does either. No, fair enough. I, I, um, I'd probably have to agree. Um, it, it is striking as someone that runs a US study centre that here we are and, and the, the intimacy of the Australian-US relationship um, 
could be up for this physical disruption for quite a while. Um, 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 and, and that's just so unprecedented that, that an advanced industrial country, our, you know, the country with, with whom Australia has its most intimate you know, relationship across whatever domain, that physical travel between the two countries is off the table. Um, I, I think that has a bigger impact on tourism than it does on business, to be honest. What, what we're learning um, as, as this pandemic goes on, and even in just in these early days, is new ways of working, new ways of delivering healthcare, new ways of doing business, new ways of having meetings. It's whether or not you want to go skiing in, the, in Colorado or, or not, you know, that makes the difference. Tipping your hand there a little bit, Leslie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's all right. Um, um, I'm wondering if we just, before we open it up to questions of a more live nature from, from, um, from people that are on the call and, and typing them in right now, just one or two questions that came in ahead of time. Uh, in this general domain of, um, you know, one, we've got a great question here from uh, Boris um, Ivanovsky, uh, who asks, you know, about what Sweden is up to. I wonder if you could just tell us, you know, what that is and, and why it's so interesting. Right. I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but um, Sweden has taken a much more relaxed attitude to social isolation than the surrounding Scandinavian countries and then Australia. Um, and as a result, people have been looking at it. it. Sweden has about the same number of, of known cases as Australia. And I don't know what their testing policy is, so I can't do it, you know, numbers. Their population is about, is less than half of ours, 10 million. So, you know, but they've had 146 deaths and Australia's only had 18. I do hear now that there's a bit of unrest in Sweden about are we doing the right thing? But nevertheless, um, they have chosen a very, I think they chose the road that the UK initially thought it was going to take and then got pulled back on. Um, so different countries do have different policies. Now in Sweden, as I understand it, most of the infections are in Stockholm and not in the rest of the country. Um, and, you know, the Swedes are a pretty, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, there are people who care about others, socially minded, socialist minded, one might even say. So some, if you have, a, I, I, I'm willing to um, go out on a limb and then say that in more socialist minded countries, perhaps you don't have to have such um, stringent um, requirements because people are more likely to obey the, the broad-based ones. Um, and and I, there's going to be an enormous amount, amount of analytical work to be done when all this is over. Let's hope it all it is over soon about, you know, what did Germany do? What did Denmark do? What did Italy not do in terms um, of... I'm wondering, in that vein, um, I think if this were sort of a, a public health crisis that wasn't impacting first world countries directly, a little bit more like 
say SARS that had a much more of a regional yeah. focus. Real, there'd be a real role for um, the United States, Australia, showing real regional <laughs> leadership in, and, and, you know, that sort of more historic role of the CDC, for instance. Um, and I'm thinking back to Ebola as a case. Yeah. But, yes. but, but while we are so focused on what's happening in Australia and as a US study centre, what's happening in the United States, but what's happening in Indonesia, Leslie? Um, what's happening well, in it looks pretty... It's starting to look pretty unnerving in Indonesia. Um, and uh, there are indications that the infection is now in Papua New Guinea and the Pacific Island countries, already ravaged by climate change and um, poverty, and where there are high incidences of the chronic disease, because of obesity, are high incidences of the chronic diseases uh, that make, um, make that worse. Now, a lot of those countries have depended on aid from Australia, New Zealand, the United States. Um, whether or not that aid is forthcoming, a lot of that's been contracted in recent years. Um, they're going to be very dependent on our ability to help. Um, a lot of countries are, yes. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and, and, and that question, by the way, that I, I just put to you about about Indonesia and PNG. I mean, very quickly, Leslie, we get to sort of a geostrategic overlay to this, where uh, there was, you know, China parading its credentials. Yeah. Uh, as a, um, I think you need someone else from the US studies. Yes, I was going to say that's a topic we will visit. We will visit in other webinars. I'm taking over very quickly, I'm just signalling that this links up to a lot of other work we do at the United yeah. States Study Center. And, and just so everybody knows, you know, this is a, an extremely live conversation in the strategic affairs community and in various parts of both the American and the Australian government at the moment about the implications of COVID-19 for initiatives that and a mindset that we had with respect to regional initiatives and what's going on in the, in the, in, in the region more broadly. And rest assured, the US Study Center will be coming back to that, perhaps not with Leslie, but, but with one of our other... <laughs> Uh, um, uh, experts uh, in, a, in a future webinar. So, so, um, so uh, consult your local listings on that. But um, so, Leslie, last question before we open it up to the to the floor, and and um, or to live. But this is again um, um, uh, uh, from the from the floor. Um, um, just one more question um, out of. Um, out of um, with respect to the way this is running um, in the United States, what powers does Trump actually have? And we can critique kind of his style at the podium um, to be sure, but as a, as a practical constitutional legal matter, what powers are reserved to him and the feds and what powers are reserved to the states and and just getting clarity on that, I think, as much as you can provide, perhaps in a brief right. window, would be great. Yes. Um, Trump certainly has powers to close the US borders and he has some powers that relate to like the Defence Procurement Act, um, those sorts of things. And, uh, but, but the state, as I understand it, the state governors have a lot more power 
and in terms of what goes on in their state and their borders and, and the decisions that they make in terms of social isolation, for example. Um, and regardless of what Trump says. So um, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in this field, but, uh, and, and, this, and the situation is also complicated because, you know, the, there are those three arms of the US government and he might claim that he can do a lot of things and, and he can by executive order if he ever chooses to execute the executive orders. But he, in the end, he's very reliant on the Congress. Um, at this point, I think we'll open it up to some questions that we're getting live. Um, I can see on my screen, and 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 this one comes from uh, Talia Anthony, who's a law student at UTS. And Leslie, this is a fascinating dimension to this. What what are the measures being taken to protect prisoners and 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 I guess people working in corrective services too, prison uh -huh. workers. Uh, it's it's a live topic amongst people who care about uh, you, you know the impact on on human rights uh, in both Australia and the United States because prisoners are locked up in very confined environments and very dependent upon the the people who provide who who watch them and provide their services um, in some st in in the United States some in some states. Uh, the governors have released at least some prisoners uh, from the state-run prisons. There are state-run and federal-run prisons in the United States, um, because presumably because they think they will be better cared for in the community. That's open for debate uh, because uh, a lot of these prisoners are going to be socially disadvantaged, and at least in prison, you are they are mandated to be given health care. Um, and similar issues uh, prevail in Australia, where I know there are also concerns about what... I mean, I mean a prison population is very much like, uh, in terms of their exposure, potential for exposure to the virus, a very like, say, a nursing home population. Um, I, I actually can't tell you exactly what's going on in Australia, other than that I see the discussions happening, but there's a lot. Just because there's talk doesn't mean there's action. Sorry, not full answer. No, that that that's fine. Um, my own indirect experience on this is a, a colleague um, studies um, um, incarceration in the United States in New York actually, and and I, I think. Early, I haven't seen any reporting on this, but some early reporting suggested uh, an institution like Rikers, uh, Rikers Island, a detention facility right in New York City itself, um, uh, was was really starting to see a, a big uptick. And um, and again, the focus shifts immediately. I think yes, you've got the prisoners, um, but you've got the prison workers who are going yes. at the end of the day, yes. and yes. they become uh, vectors of transmission. Um, um, I'm wondering um, if this is a great question. Um, this this question comes from Armin Hicks, and that is, what's going to be the impact of of this, Leslie, on you know global and Armin's language, global cosmopolitan institutions such as the WHO? Will the pandemic reinforce the current 
state sovereignty nationalism tension um, that's undermining some of those institutions. And for that matter, you know, and again, don't want to take you out of your comfort zone necessarily, but something we're thinking about at the US Study Center a lot. Do, have we seen the high watermark? I think that might be the case for the WHO as it currently exists. It's definitely been not been behind the eight ball, I think is the expression. It's been lagging in terms of its appropriate responses to this pandemic. And and part of its problem of, of I mean, they say and the OECD say and everybody understands that intrinsically we need a coordinated international approach to, to solve the pandemic. You can't just do it one country at a time. But their ability to coordinate is lost. Um, and I'm not sure what, the, what it is at the moment, but I know that uh, last week they the donations that they wanted and needed were running well behind schedule. So I think uh, perhaps it needs to be revitalised or reincarnated in some different form, but I, I'm not particularly optimistic. And hello to Armin, whom I haven't seen in quite a while. Simon, I've lost your sound. Oh, I, I, I had myself on mute and a uh, little, little, uh, little technical um, um, glitch on my end, but easily remedied. Um, um, I think perhaps one question that we ought to get to, and, and this is perhaps, it's not a public health question in, in, in the first instance, Leslie, but and it's more, I think, putting our hats on as political pundits to some extent. Um, and that is um, the implications of this for the election in the oh. right now. Now, feel free to wave this off if you if you wish, but um, <clears throat> it, it's a question that we get asked every hour at the United States Study Center. And what does this mean for Trump's re-election? And moreover, you've got this very interesting dynamic at the moment where Biden is essentially holed up in his basement in, in, in Delaware. And Bernie's still running. And, 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 and the Democratic primaries are being delayed by, by state governors. Um, wondering if you could perhaps uh, give us a sense of um, any, any readout you have from American friends and colleagues about how that might be tracking. I know you worked for, um, for you know, on the Democratic side of politics up on the Hill, but perhaps you know, the, the, the piece yeah. that you might be most plugged into is how it's tracking inside the Democratic Party? Um, look, I think the real question is what does it, it, what does it mean? There are two, two different issues here. One is what does it mean for the processes of an election? And the other is what does it mean for the individuals involved? And, and I think we, ha we have to be very worried about whether or not the processes of the election are going to take place in a timely fashion. Um, we've already seen them delayed. And, and uh, um, whereas, for example, states like Colorado do all their voting by email um, yeah, or mail. Oregon is a vote by mail right. state. Yeah. And, and, but a lot of other states don't and don't want to. Um, so the ability to switch uh, in a timely fashion for November is, is up in the air. 
in terms of the Democrats, um, I think everybody thinks that Bernie's trying to be the, the spoiler um, and that perhaps he should get out of the race and, and then that would obviate the need for, uh, at least to some extent, for a Democrat convention, which is July. Um, and then I think if you want to be really worried, uh, it's pretty obvious to me that uh, Trump would be very happy if there was no election and, and he might look to postpone November. I'm not sure what the legalities around that would be. Um, I think it's written into the Constitution, isn't it? When um, you um, the, the, uh, something that we've done a little bit of research on at the <laughs> Study Centre. Um, the, um, the, the, the actual date of an election um, is actually up to Congress. Um, the, the requirement for an election is obviously in the Constitution, but um, the requirement and you know that elections be on the first Tuesday in November, except if the first day in November is a Tuesday, that specific language on the date um, is, is by statute. Um, but the thing I come back to, Leslie, just sort of chiming in as the political scientist on the call, um, is is that um, the states have tremendous autonomy as to the form and manner, and 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 a switch. I think this will pr most likely prompt a switch to the look. We'll see where we are come Labor Day, October, November, with the the public health crisis. But a bottom up demand for more alternatives to voting in person, such as voting by mail or internet, but also a top-down response by states themselves yeah. wanting to roll that out in ways that I think has been done in fits and starts across the American states, I fully expect. And be on, by the way, it's in the interest of both sides of politics. But I'm not sure that it's going to be driven by the population who are much less enthusiastic about exercising their voting rights in general than, say, an Australian population who would be demanding that, as we saw in Brisbane last week. So um, there, there have been some polls that have shown um, a small bump, a, a pretty small bump, really, in Trump over his handling of... of um, the pandemic. Um, I, for one, roll my eyes at that. But you know, other people. There have, certainly have been some things that have happened and are continuing to happen. So, um, but then the last I saw, uh, Biden was ahead uh, by about four or five points. Um, but you know, we're a long way out, yeah. and um, and it's really going to be. Is the United States in recession by November? I yeah, think, and, and you know, just again, I think it's so hard to predict, and and yeah. so much will depend on, you know, the way Trump won in twenty sixteen was didn't win the popular vote, but won those, you know, won the right states, uh, as it were, and that was always his path to re-election in twenty twenty. I think it remains that way. But the big unknown is the response well, in public opinion. And, and you know, if things get really screwed up in Texas or yeah, yeah. whatever, Arizona. Uh, we're, we're just about out of time. I'm, um, I'm going to... Um, there's so many questions here. We've got a great one, Leslie. If you've got 15 seconds, 30 yeah. seconds, reflect on this. Just 
you, you, I mentioned in the intro, you began life at the US Defense Medical School, but the role of militaries in responding mm -hmm. national militaries as being deployed in these crises, 30 seconds on that, if you've got it, Leslie. Um, well, the, in, the, in the US, the Department of Defense has huge research capacity. They have their own hospitals and their own healthcare service. And so does the Veterans Affairs, which is, could also step in. And I've not really seen a lot about what they're doing there. Australian military obviously have great deployment capabilities and can set up uh, tent hospitals and so on. They don't have the inherent, you know, brick and mortar facilities, nor the um, academic research capacities of, of the US military. But, but I, it seems to me that Donald Trump hasn't really tapped into those resources in the way, in the way that he might. Um, you know, those veterans affairs hospitals could easily be used um, for coronavirus. Sure. Um, look, we'll, we'll, that was a question from Sabrina Kim, by the way, and, and thank you, Sabrina, and Haley Channa, who asked the question about November, and so many, um, my, my screen is lit up with, with commentary um, and, and, uh, and, and, and questions. Uh, it's been fantastic. Um, um, as we end this, there's, there, there are an hour of this and there are, you know, um, uh, there are three digits in the number of people um, online. It's, it's really phenomenal. Um, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Leslie, for your time and expertise. Thank you to the team at the United States Study Center who are in the background sort of enabling this technologically. And, and please, um, I don't know what virtual applause looks like, but um, um, <laughs> um, virtual claps for, for Leslie. Thank you so much. And please, everybody, um, do check the website of the US Study Center. Um, we are working harder than ever at the moment on analysis and insight on all different aspects that we only touched on lightly today. Trade and investment, um, the role of innovation in responding to implications of various industries like airlines and airports, uh, the geostrategic uh, overlay, Trump's invocation of the defense, um, uh, the DPA. Um, um, so much research is pouring out of the United States Study Center right now. Our ability to, to present that to you with live events has gone away, in-person events, I should say. Please look at our website. There's so much coming up every day, and we'll be certainly doing more of this to help service those of you like us, uh, with, a, with a great interest in the Australian-US relationship. Uh, thank you all. We'll see you at another <laughs> webinar shortly. Bye, Leslie. Bye. Uh, thank you.